And here we are in the Burley Fisher savannah. I'm whispering because behind me are some of the shyest creatures known to the planet. <laughs> Cuss. Hello? Hello? <laughs> if I came out ten years ago, I had a blue cover. Do you have it? I don't remember the name of the author. I wanted to bow it or it's the title. Do you have it? <laughs> this is the pink trousered booby. <laughs> Have you got any books on heraldry? <laughs> Truly, the bookseller has camouflaged themselves as a bookcase. It is a remarkable Hello, transformation. I've got some pillows. Do you want to buy any? <laughs> That's a real one. That one actually, actually did happen. <laughs> you can have a pillow guy too. I need some, some pillows as well. I've just broken the fourth wall. I'm sorry. Because I'm in a basement, which is <laughs> which has a fifth wall. It's more like breaking the fifth ceiling in the basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm coming to you live and direct uh, from the dusty and dank <laughs> event space. Oh, actually, I'm not really selling it, am I? For one <laughs> this is this is the true flavour of Burley Fisher that we uh, are giving you here on the podcast today because. Um, we are actually chatting with someone that we have done a live event with, so we're trying to bring you the full chaotic and dank flavour of the live events. You have to supply your own wine. Yeah, you do. Um, and you have, but you still have to pay us for it. It's a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, we have it. It's, uh, in fact, we should start working on a BYOB that's bring your own books. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you come into the bookshop with books, we charge you <laughs> to open them. I think there's a government scheme for that. Well, they're literally can't reach So anyway, takeaway from um, our David Attenborough interview uh, interview uh, introduction is that we are we're open now yeah. to the to the general and specific public. Um, yeah. The specific being the um, that they don't know. Very <laughs> uh, <laughs> a top secret mission for the public. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, save us from the pink trousered booby by coming in. And talking to us about um, what you've been reading during lockdown and what your most anticipated new releases that were meant to be released in May. Um, why cannot books drop like the Taylor Swift album? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like you Will weren't you expecting us... a new novel from Hilary Mantel, but boom, midnight, here it is. <laughs> come and tell us, come and tell us the books you are still anticipating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wrote this in a forest during lockdown. Yeah. Boom, here it is. Boom. Yeah. The industry fires into life. Yeah. Like coal and gas after the uh <laughs> as the economy opens up. Exactly. What so, were um, you reading when it was so quiet outside because there were no planes? Um oh, I feel really sad now. Um <laughs> Yeah. Just we have a little weep. Yeah, it's just, just having like a, a massive gulp of my event wine. There. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually hear strange as the new Taylor Swift album coming from me upstairs. Uh, yeah, to, the, emanating um... from my chest, actually. Like I've actually, <laughs> yeah. I've had it implanted, um, just so I can constantly be emanating a little, uh, a little t- Swifty and sadness. Um, who are we talking to today? So well, Taylor, <laughs> Swift. Taylor Swift. Yeah. Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> no, we are talking to Ellie Williams, um, whose book did, in fact, uh, come out 
this very month. Um, it's called The Liars Dictionary and it's published by William Heinemann and it has um, an excessively beautiful cover that covers some exceptionally beautiful prose. So the end papers was... as well. And Good some more. exceptionally beautiful end papers, um, which if you purchase it from Burley Fisher Books, which I understand is an excellent purveyor, uh, you may get a one with the author's autograph thereupon. Yeah. It will be signed, but I have torn out all of the end papers <laughs> paper uh, my basement, so you won't get them because they're all mine. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's 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 a lexical caper, isn't it? So it's uh, it's a real um, I don't know fountain volcano of um, a torrent of language, uh, laughs, love, life. <laughs> I'm already building a wall hanging for my for my kitchen out of uh, my sloganizing for it um, <laughs> um yeah don't it's, stop me <laughs> it's a delight it's 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 a jeu d'esprit um and also sometimes a sur l'escalier um and you know these are words that already exist but it's actually a book that's full of words that ellie invented which are just incredible and we're hoping that some of them pass into everyday language so if you do read it come in and use one of the mount weasels to us mm-hmm. and we will be very happy and we will explain in the podcast what mount weasel is and yeah. why the book is full of made-up words and why mm-hmm. it's such a lexical caper Three um, your favorite ones or maybe wrap them around a brick and throw them through the window since you can do that now only one sounds in the basement only one sounds in the basement safe brick throwing um <laughs> Yeah, so I think lots of people will know Ellie as a writer of short stories um, for her book A Trib and also her amazing project during lockdown where she wrote short stories to order um, by auction to raise money. So she's a lockdown hero and it was brilliant to chat with her. And I think we have some readings from the book as well. We do. Should we hand over to Ellie to read us in? Professor Williams. What would be in your personal dictionary? Pip asked me from her position by my office window. It was January, so the light had vanished from my window and we were working as long a day in Swansby House as I could ever remember. I stretched my arms and pinched the bridge of my nose. I don't know if there's anything new to say. That's the ambition of the woman I love, Pip said, and she came round the back of my chair to wrap an arm gently about my shoulders. What things in the world do I want to define for other people that might otherwise be overlooked? Coming up with words is a particular kind of weird creative peristalsis. Memory is involved, and self-awareness, and absorption. The images of someone tapping your brain as one might tap a trunk for syrup. I've no idea, I said. I thought a word for how I always mistype warm with an R as warm with an L. Silly things. A word for knowing when the pasta is perfectly cooked just by looking at it. Crucial silly things. A word for when you're head over heels in love with someone and you're both just burbling nonsense at each other forgivably. A word for mispronouncing words that you've only ever seen written down. A word for your favourite song that can never be over-listened to. 
a word for the great kindness of people who, unseen, take care to release insects that are trapped in rooms, a word for being surprised by an aspect of your physicality, a word for the way that sometimes thoughts can sit unpenetrable but snug, like an avocado stone in your brain. A word for the strange, particular bluish sheen of skin rolled between the fingers. What about a word for not being out, Pip said. We never fight, not really. Not about the expected stuff. Not about ambitions, not about our future, not about exes. X, as a word, is included as a verb in Swansby's Dictionary. It is defined as to obliterate character by typing X over it, to cross out in this way, and as a noun, a mark made in lieu of a signature, often witnessed. In three years, the closest we've ever come to a row really came down to one of us wanting the other to take a definitive action. Where did that come from? I said. Forget it, she said. I'm out enough, I said. Are you? Pip asked. This face is left intentionally blank, her tone seemed to say to me. Hi Ellie, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, thanks for having me. Pleasure, I mean, I, I feel sad that it's not um, actually in the bookshop because I feel we, we've done so much together there that it, it would have been great to um, to do something for this book at the shop, but... Yes, it's, it's, it's nice to whirl through some kind of um, glitching algorithm to you. That's, uh, <laughs> if that's the only way we can be together, then that's what we shall do. Um, and it does yeah. remind me that actually we did appear together on a radio show probably two years ago now um yeah. in a very drafty in my head it was a pontoon in the sky that can't be real um yeah. I, th I think but i think it was <laughs> <laughs> on top Perfect. Of a container. so i think uh yeah a bar a, it was recorded in a bar on top of a shipping container in london fields which is is, is so kind of uh hackney that it makes me wince <laughs> I assume this was for the launch of a gin brand. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Branded content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we sold out early on. <laughs> yeah, get it out of the way. <laughs> um, but anyway, congratulations on the book, which is Thank why we're here today. Um, I'm for, not in a shipping container, but, you know, we'll have to make do with... Um... Speak for yourself. I <laughs> 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 should, yeah, we should have gone over gone over that at the beginning um so that i didn't make <laughs> all of myself as to assume that you're not in a shipping container um, <laughs> <laughs> so many make that mistake <laughs> um also uh hi to say uh i should have said that at the beginning uh thank you for <laughs> uh i'm i'm also i am not in a shipping container i'm gonna <laughs> clarify that up front clarifying. <laughs> but i am very excited uh to have a chance to talk about the liars dictionary which has a publication date or something i i don't even know if that's a thing anymore but it's in july we're in july this we month. are in july it is in july yeah. it is a book that takes place in two different time periods which could be a description of all of our lives at the moment and i think is going to be one of the things that people find so compelling when they come to read it now is how it it weaves these two time periods together mm -hmm. 
And I'm wondering if that was if that was always the plan, Ellie. Was it always going to be a a hither and yon interweaving time traveling points of connection book? Or did you did you initially start squarely in the historical novel or in a contemporary novel? That's a a really good question because the the iterations that the different drafts of this novel have, have gone through mean that at times it was all going to be set in the present day. At times it was all going to be set in uh, the late 19th century. At one moment, and I should say that these were all very speculative drafts rather than <laughs> kind of regimented attempts, but uh, at one point it was going to be written as a dictionary. So with um, headwords or lemmas then defined, the, the definitions being the paragraphs of the book. So the structure of it would be according to not only alphabetical order, but when those words would have entered the language. So a more modern word like omnishambles would be a word that was then set in, uh, I don't know, 2010, while an older word like head would have been kind of uh, a lot earlier. I mean, that sounds like it would have been quite difficult. <laughs> yeah, I realised that actually ambition and talent need to come together <laughs> in glorious harmony for that to happen. So I think that was more a procrastination deflation of the ego uh, than actually getting on and, and writing it. So the way that the novel is structured, uh, it alternates between the present day and the, the late 19th century. And as you say, in alternating still tries to show how the present is informed by the past action and how in a weird way the past action considers the present narrative um yeah yeah that's interesting because it kind of one of one of my questions was i think when you have these have these kind of two um timeline um uh, structures i'm always interested in where you find those points of connection because i think that they are really in conversation with each other the whole way through um Mm which is one of the most interesting things about the book. And I wonder how you set about that, because it sounds like you actually started with something even more structural and worked your way back to, 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 to this. So was mm. it something, did you have those kind of points of connection from the start or was it um, as you were writing through? I think both in terms of kind of thematic and dramatic interests when it came to, to writing this novel, I liked the idea of dictionaries being very much of a moment but Mm. often considered as if they are registering some um, immutable truth or fact Um, so the idea that say uh, a dictionary that's published in the mid 1850s might have uh, a a definition for malaria but it wouldn't yet know that malaria was um, Uh, spread by mosquitoes Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea that that kind of knowledge would have to be added or edited in later doesn't mean that the dictionary was incorrect necessarily but just that it wasn't up to speed um (laughs) with with the reality of it and so mixing the idea of how dictionaries are both treated as timeless but are also very much of their time um the idea of hoaxes as well and how pranks often have a a waiting period, a kind of tension before uh, the prank is revealed or until the um, joke is explained um, or the punchline is delivered. Um, And I kind of wanted that to be something encountered by a reader in reading the book, this idea that 
um, something could be secreted and then discovered uh, that that's something important to the to the novel as well um, and that certainly in the case of the Winsworth character in this novel that that act of secretion which is a horrible way of phrasing anything isn't important to anyone else it's not some grand narrative or some great uh, infraction within history and and ideas of literary legacy it's a very private kind of scurrilous act of subversion um, that's not meant to really have an audience so I in writing the novel I was I was trying to think about how to show the results of that or how to show the payoff of that um, through narrative that has momentum um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I possibly because also I'm I am more used to writing short stories I think the novel allows that in a slightly um, well, in a different way, uh, it allows development of action um, mm-hmm. rather than in short stories where development of action, at least the way that I was writing it, tends to be brief and kind of a, a, a glimpse or a, um, a release of tension that is uh, more likely to be a short, sharp shock rather than something, as I say, paid out or, or sometimes torturous or associative like this sentence um so it, it i enjoyed using that that opportunity of the novel to to try and tackle that or, or look over that yeah because I, I, I think that novels kind of almost require um they require that in a way that short stories don't which forces that um to be embedded in the way that the the um yeah the way that you structure it which is interesting thinking about dictionaries because and time and how they're often thought of, of as non-narrative, um, hmm. but uh, this no- this novel shows that they that's not the case. They're also thought of as unfunny, and this novel shows that that is also not the case. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm interested in how you how you found your way to understanding that you know the assumption that they were non-narrative is untrue. <laughs> Like why dictionaries? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think I had always had this idea of of the dictionary. There's um a writer called John Algio who makes uh, a distinction between Bibles and dictionaries as being one category of book that kind of are distinct from other books. There's this kind of biblio-idolatry where they are the mainstay of any, inverted commas, good reading bookshelf. Um, And that they're these important truth documents that you should have in your home if you are to be a cultured and thoughtful individual. Obviously, this is nonsense. But I think there is something in the fact that the dictionary has a a cultural import um, and a status where it does often feel um, unimpeachable, it does seem monolithic, as you say, often not uh, considered alongside humour or or kind of a humane frailty. There's so much ambition in even considering that a dictionary is possible, the idea of registering or fixing language. I suppose Um, puncturing that kind of, um, uh, I suppose, enlightenment pomposity is mm. part of the humour as well. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of that in the book, which is like, yeah, it's very funny. Um, 
obviously feels generously towards dictionary but also sees the kind of inherent hubris in in the mm. in the project that they describe i suppose this is also about humor and is really apropos of absolutely no debates that are happening in literary culture right now whatsoever um <laughs> don't come after me on twitter it's um <laughs> i'm i'm really thinking about um humor hoaxes and what you were saying about in some ways the difference between a short story and a novel is the working out of consequences or consequentiality and i can literally feel my like victorian sideburns growing as i say that (laughs) like this is all about consequences but there are two different kinds of hoaxes around language and authority that happen in the novel and one is winsworth's um who's the character in the turn of the century the protagonist of the turn of the century story and then there's another (laughs) hoax threat um that happens in the contemporary story that has much more serious consequences even though it's also to do with with speech it's to do with speech that is not intended um to do direct or deliberate harm but it does and i'm trying very hard not to to give away a really central a very moving aspect of the book but the question about free speech is often phrases not all speech can be free you cannot stand up in a crowded theater and shout fire i mean we don't know what a crowded theater is anymore but the principle (laughs) the principle still holds so i'm also really really interested in that aspect of the book that it does think through ethical consequences of speech and language while also holding on to the idea that there is this freedom of playful speech that all it does is enlarge our imaginations and and both of we have to think of both of those together does that Hmm. make sense yeah that does and I think in a way as you say both of the characters are coming to terms with that in different ways so with Winsworth uh, a lot of his storyline is about how he resents his ability to be elaborate beyond the strictures of language to um, uh, have words for his experience that in some way have any traction Um, and in many ways he's quite an ineffectual character and and he projects that feeling of of ineffectuality onto how he understands language and how he understands his job as a lexicographer while with Mallory often she's kind of polexed by this anxiety that she hasn't got the right words for things she hasn't got the right words for herself and that people are going to misunderstand the language that she does handle or mishandle and that there isn't she doesn't see room for herself to be playful with language because she doesn't feel like she really has a handle on it um in a way that she feels confident and um as you say that then has consequences for her which um, are, are to do with violence, both structural and um, and physical. But at the same time, she she doesn't feel empowered by that. She doesn't feel like she needs to make a language for herself or that she is able to. And she, in a way, she's very envious of people that do have that. I mean, in the book, her partner is a lot more confident at claiming language for their own and claiming space in language for themselves while she feels that she actually isn't there yet. Um, She is more tentative. Um, And that's one of her flaws as a character. Um, Maybe a a sympathetic flaw rather than a 
damning one. But the fact that language isn't always something that's only rich and giving and generous and flexible, that it can be rigid and um, overly complex and complicated and, and in that way actually quite intimidating. And, and maybe that's maybe I've taken this question or answer in a, in a direction that's not useful, but maybe that maps onto ideas of free speech and who gets to say what in which forum. That if language is policed, and that's the reason language exists, it's no longer communicative. It's not about communication anymore. It's about being seen to say the right thing and being told by authorities that it is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and dictionaries can play a part in that. that... I suppose that's a, that's a kind of big moment for Winsworth where he realises that he has that authority <laughs> for mm. himself um, to define through, again, trying to speak around things that happen in order not to spoil the book. Um, <laughs> but... I say spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Um, <laughs> when he discovers that, you, you know, he can define words for, for himself and that that has power that will last. I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's a kind of subversion of, of people's normal understanding of dictionaries uh, that is, is very moving within the context of his, yeah, his struggles within the book, I suppose. And in a way, the fact that he can get away with it because he is anonymous, because he is mm. um, part of a, a workforce where his uh, labour is not going to be recognised and rewarded for, for his individual effort. And... While that's something that he feels sapped by and he resents, I think, in many ways, it does mean that he's then able to generate creative work where he can feel proud or he can feel in control rather than just Mm -hmm. faceless and part of a larger organisation that he doesn't actually respect, that doesn't necessarily respect him. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that is an important reminder that dictionaries are also, in a way a hoax or not necessarily good faith actors when it when it comes to language that it's not just that they might define malaria as carried by a miasma because that's the state of of science at the time but that they are also policing language and producing certain kinds of authoritative identities and dominant identities and that what Winsworth does is to subvert that through using his his anonymity and again my my sideburns are now at mutton chop level <laughs> but <laughs> such a cool look um i, I want to say that 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 gives off for me a little bit of like <laughs> bartleby the scrivener in there maybe and one of the sort of fun things about the liars dictionary and more fun for people who know more about ni- 19th century literature than i do and i'm not even i'm not even going to try i'm just going to say bartleby and also Sherlock Holmes. There's some absolutely delicious little, particularly Holmes and Irene Adler, um, <laughs> like Easter eggs in there. And I really yeah. did think of them as that, that, that this was in some way somewhere between like a video game set in an imagined world of 19th century literature in the <laughs> historical sections, a kind of fanfic. Um, and I use that word like lovingly because it's mm. been so important for queer writers to take film and television classics so like why not let's have literary fiction fanfic as well and I felt like the liar's dictionary is like a shot across the bowels of that of doing what what Winsworth does although more anonymously and Mm. taking what we assume to be Victorian literature and kind of 
queering it up in this in this fanfic way and holding on to this difficult thing about as you say Mallory is still finding a language for herself but the book has a language for that Mm. yeah I I'm really glad you you said that because that also links with ideas of um uh, what are they called? Anachronisms. Um, and that that can not only be through, say, um, would that type of material have been used for, for a woman's dress in 1899? You know, is that even possible? But also in language, how, mm-hmm. you know, people in the early 19th century did have hangovers. They just didn't have a word for that. So what does that mean about how we think about ourselves? Not that a hangover is the only thing that makes a modern person or whatever, but um, how do we forget about the rounded reality of being a human being because we lather our ideas of the past and what has been with these ideas that their sensibilities and their experiences of the world were completely um, alien to what we experience. It's just that the language wasn't there in the same way. and I think definitely that's in the historical parts, in the, in the parts of the novel that are in the 19th century, there is this kind of souped up moments. Um, and I'm glad that the, the Holmes and Irene Adler parts came out, um, <laughs> that they are often pitched very high in terms of the, <laughs> the register of action. I mean, it's not a spoiler to say at, at one point, they start wrestling with pelicans in St. James's Park. Um, Definitely I, my favorite scenes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember if it made it to the final, I should really check if it made it to the final copy, but there's a kind of protracted Bartitsu sequence, um, which yes. uh, is yeah. excellent, wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, which... not at all one of the tip-offs for Home <laughs> yeah. no. um, And I think in a way that was because I did want to nod to the idea that for Mallory in the contemporary world, trying to imagine this 19th century lexicographer, she is having to draw on the resources of what she imagines the 19th century to be like. Um, And those are from literature or from um, adaptations of films or art. They're, They're not from her trying to necessarily see herself at at least at the beginning of the novel in the guise of someone working at the dictionary she is um imagining what it might be like in a way that is through the lens of someone trying to understand the past through recreations of the past and it's only as the novel develops i think that she then starts to query that and and queer that to an extent yeah but no i i definitely take the idea of historical fan fiction as a as a compliment the historical parts (laughs) Yeah, Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was a, I think it was a talk or an article um, by or by uh, Sarah Perry, who after reading part of the Essex Serpent, someone in the audience said, oh, but you know, you mentioned that the tide was at two metres on this date. And actually, I've looked up the tide tables and it would have been <gasps> three metres, eight. And just the idea of that being kind of a... Um, a point on truth side rather than yeah. what fiction could be or do or allow is something I'm not, I'm not interested in with, no. with fiction. I think that's a different game and a different interesting game if you want to do that. But it's not something that I think, certainly for this book, um, I'm more interested in the malleability of, of what we're recording and what we're um, trying to register rather than trying that there is a strict definite truth we see or feel or understand yeah and i think that kind of helps to 
helps to understand the kind of inherent fictionalizing in every written record and to kind of undermine this idea that um there is a right answer <laughs> mm. <laughs> i feel like if you start insisting on um you know tide levels being correct is uh, you're, you're probably reading it for the wrong reason <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. although if you're you're writing a phd about tide tables um, neo-victorian novels then that's the best reason but True. um i hope that yeah. they have uh, other things going on in their life as well um yeah that actually that 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 brings us on to another question so i think that people who are studying will be interested in because this this is written as a research phd but a creative research phd is that right i just want to check that before i blunder on <laughs> no 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 that's definitely right so this was the um creative element there was also a, a like i guess a, a monograph about fictional entries and dictionaries whether they function as as creative writing or something else but yeah it was definitely part of a, a phd the first draft of I kind of wanted to ask what what kind of opportunities you think it afforded the you know the, the novel the creative part of the PhD that you wouldn't mm. have otherwise had and what ways do you think it um, influenced perhaps structure of the of the novel or um, or or how did it influence it in any way I suppose <laughs> Yeah, I think it meant that I was able to do a lot more research into the way that dictionaries function. Um, I think I had a lot of assumptions about that and I had a, a lot of which were correct, a lot of which were very fanciful. Um, and it just meant that I, through the, the three years of the PhD, um, was able to uh, examine some of those stereotypes of dictionary making or lexicography and follow uh, the threads of, of that research in a, in a more dogged and attuned way then I think I would have allowed myself without that structure. I mean, obviously, better writers uh, with more resources would, would have been able to do that. And by no means am I saying you have to have a PhD or, or any structure of research to be able to write a, a brilliantly researched or not. Um, but I think that I, through the PhD, was able to see that my novel didn't have to be a thesis. The thesis could be part of some other interest in my research and that the novel rather could be a kind of fruiting result of, of research that didn't have to be didactic necessarily or didn't no, have to feels, prove a point. It feels like that, and it feels successful, uh, a successful fruit. On the oh. <laughs> I, I sort of like the image of a, a novel being like the fruiting body of a fungal network <laughs> right, of, right. of research that's busily going on under the ground, connecting all these different trees and plants and communicating and what we're seeing is a is a fruiting body which looks completely distinct mm. but is the product of this and there's so much networked thinking so much of what's happening in the book is about making connections and that's op often happening on a linguistic level that in the same way there are these easter eggs of 19th century fiction there's almost these little spores of words that then fruit later right. if i can if i can take that on and was that something that you'd sort of thought about from the beginning or is that something that you developed through that the drafting process you talked about and found yourself going backwards to put things in that would reactivate later was that like a structural principle that's I mean as you're saying it I, I'm, I'm gonna claim that yes that was something that I thought of <laughs> because something in my my research of, of dictionaries and in fictional entries in dictionaries was this idea of um, dictionaries feeding from, oh look, I'm mixing the metaphors, but feeding, feeding off previous dictionaries. 
and how um, I'm going to forget the name of the scholar, but someone's written a, a paper about how uh, dictionaries are, are part of this food chain, and they describe um, the kind of lexical Pac-Man that goes runs through them, um, whereby <laughs> if a word um, is then adopted by one dictionary or defined in in that dictionary in a certain way that then is then is taken wholesale for someone else's dictionary and it's just replicated and replicated and replicated similarly an error can be replicated in that way so um uh often they're called ghost words which is this marvelous um and very evocative phrase for these, these words that are summoned or haunt dictionaries uh, and often those are the result of um printing error and and within the idea of ghosts one of those that i think went through throughout the 19th century in a number of different dictionaries or word books. It was from a misprint of Alexander Pope's take on the Iliad, I think, where he wrote phantom nation, two words, but they ran together in the print. So phantom nation was one word and it was put into dictionaries um, as defined as a great number of a great host of ghosts. Um, (laughs) And this word, because it was seen as A-OK in one dictionary, then found its way into different dictionaries until someone actually bothered to look up the source text and say, "Mm, that's not quite right. Um, So the idea of either false information or crucial information being seeded into uh, a text and then only having any consequence or having consequence later on, whether in a way that causes tension or in a way that suddenly casts action in a whole new light. is something that that interests me and, and something that in terms of the research I really was fascinated by and I think probably did feed into the novel. Um, I think for a final question, um, as we've kind of been driving out, the, the book does hold its research really lightly, which makes me feel like there must be a lot of things that were kind of left on the cutting room floor as you, mm. as you kind of figured out what was going to serve the fruit. Right. <laughs> retreat into the stem. Um, right. So <laughs> this metaphor is really, it's, uh, it's really running on fumes now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done gills yet. Maybe we can, no. you know. Yet. <laughs> the mycelial mat of my novel. Like, um... Yeah, that's, that's um, subscriber content only. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's free feed stuff. Okay. <laughs> Sign up for spores. Um... <laughs> I think I'm already on that newsletter. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask if there was anything in particular that you just kind of really wanted to get in there, but it just couldn't, it couldn't mount weasel its way in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it it is interesting you say that because I, for a long time in coming up with the name for the uh, contemporary character Mallory. So uh, I'm going to embarrass myself by my ignorance because this wasn't an early draft. And now uh, I have to pretend it didn't exist because it's not in the final book, but the name Mm -hmm. Mallory in the same way that with um, computer programming, uh, figures will often rather be called A and B, they'll be called Alice and Bob, um, mm. for, for ex- examples. Mallory is the name given to a malicious uh, or malware that's, that kind of causes a conflagration, often surreptitiously, whether a viral attack or kind of an unknown body that has to be then detected. Um, and as you can tell from my description of it, I realized that my knowledge of computer programming or anything to do with um, programming was, was nil, less than nil. Um, so I, I kind of walked it, walked it back. Um, but the name Mallory 
persisted. Mm. So that I think That's this cool. idea of detection and of um, seeking out or removing um, unwanted bodies or not useful agents within a system uh, was something that I I had perhaps brought to the fore in previous drafts, mm -hmm. but has now dwindled to the point of um, not being there except in name alone. I guess it does still, um, again, not to spoil the book, it does kind of have a life. That meaning mm. does have a life um, in the book. So mm. uh, you'll have to buy the spores so you can find out what, uh, <laughs> what that life is. Uh, and one final, final question, um, because we're never good at letting our guests go. Mm. Um, we want to carry on the conversation forever. But in in all of this research, particularly research about, about books and words and literature, we're imagining that you've amassed quite a few books of your own, if not all in your shipping container, then possibly <laughs> on, on library lists and so on. And while it's no longer relevant except to people in certain areas of Melbourne, at the beginning of uh, lockdown, you may not remember because it was four and a half thousand years ago, <laughs> There was something of a panic about toilet paper. Mm. So we thought the best use of this potential disaster was to ask our podcast guests who are writers, which would be the first book they would use <laughs> when they ran out. Uh, um, I suggest that everyone should stock up on copies of The Liar's Dictionary oh, by Ellie yeah. Williams. <laughs> <laughs> um, not allowed <laughs> damn it okay um then in which case what would i use as toilet paper i would hmm. i mean surely there are several hundreds possibly even thousands of copies of swansby's new encyclopedia dictionary <laughs> very fine tissuey paper oh yes the finest yeah let's go with that i'd use the fictional dictionary swansby's new encyclopedic dictionary um probably volumes uh r till t um, uh yeah that would be the ideal uh bum fodder yes that would be yeah. delightful yeah. thank you fictionally clean bottom right. yeah that honestly will be the um that will be on the blurb on the back <laughs> like once you finish that finish something else and enjoy but no yeah that, that's uh that will be my answer thank you <laughs> Wow. Okay. What a show. Thank you to Elif for coming on. And thank you, Sam and So, for all of this top tier content you've been producing for us today. Um, Straight off the top shelf. Yeah. In the basement. So, so is that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. We have some announcements to make, I think. Do we have some announcements? I think so. Well, I think we got the announcement of, of your triumphant turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan, it really cool there. The real news. Um... <laughs> So from the from the from the second of August, well from the first of August, yeah, uh, Mr. Dan Dan Fiddle will be back in the shop, so we'll be opening on Mondays. Um, and he's a grade yeah. A eye candy behind the counter at Billy Fisher once more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that you took the words out of my mouth, <laughs> and I'm glad that you did because now I can't get sued for I don't get sued.
We will Maybe be posting I'll... pictures on Insta, right? Yeah, for real. Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Check, check the stories. <laughs> through the door. Dancing at the desk. It's got legs. And then Dan's legs. Dan's legs. Yeah. Um, do, we um, have any, do we have any real news? Uh... <laughs> I don't so, know what's real anymore, but... Yeah. Um, the let's, ever... let's dive into that. <laughs> no, let's not dive into that. I don't know what's real anymore. Um, the ever amazing Sarah Shin, the only person who can stop witches on TikTok from hexing the moon, um, that is a real thing, is uh, doing so by producing some absolutely incredible events, which we are supporting as virtual booksellers. So in order to prepare yourself for the excitement of Dan's return, um, join Ignota Books on Thursday the 30th of July at 7pm British Summertime um, via Zoom for the launch of Ariana Rayner's A Sand Book, which is just an incredible... It's not just a book of poetry, it's a statement of being, um, being in the world now. And Ariana will be reading alongside Fanny Howe to launch her new book, Night Philosophy, from the amazing Divided Publishing in Belgium. And they will be joined by Eileen Miles, a Belly Fisher favourite. And also there will be music from Emily Ritz Lumpland and Eva Las Vegas. Um, and I have all this in my head because I am emceeing it. It's going to be wild. Um, for all of you who remember Hexit, it's going to be like that, but more. Um, so you can book that on the Ignosa website. You can buy the books from us, um, order them up, we'll get them to you. And uh, Sarah and Silver Press have also organized an incredible series of four events on Monday evenings in August. Revolution is not a one-time event, focusing on the politics and poetics and potential of abolition. Um, and they have just incredible speakers, including uh, Gail Lewis, um, Nat Raha, Christine Sh- Christina Sharp, Adrian Mary Brown, Lola Olufemi. Sign up for them, tickets are going really fast. That's all on the Silver Press website. And we are also supporting it by selling a book list you can browse the books on our website uh in the collection revolution is not a time event in fact it happens every monday in august so (laughs) (laughs) it happens every monday in august and then every day thereafter so your august mondays can combine dan fuller in the house and revolution in your face Uh, don't mix metaphors like that because they're going to explode <laughs> um, well thanks so much again to Ellie uh, yeah. and it really yeah. is a fantastic book I think it's a uh, real tonic um, for these kind of confusing um, yeah and alienating <laughs> times that we're living through it's, it's, what, it's, it's is real? <laughs> what is real <laughs> and on that note on that note let's, let's finish this debacle from Bye. the land of the mountains <laughs> all goodbye farewell Bye. <laughs>